Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. You should be, um, if you have kids or students, or even if you don't, you should be thankful that you have someone um, that is that is as concerned as Kelly is about your kids and your students coming to know and follow Jesus. So be grateful for her. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. I'm going to read the passage that we're going through this morning. It's in Genesis chapter 6. And it is the story of Noah. So these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set a door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten. And store it up, it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Um, you guys have, a, you guys have a, like anything that's happened recently where it just kind of infuriates you? Like there's no moral ambiguity about it at all. It's just sometimes things are so plainly wrong, it's easy to get super angry at them. Is there anything like happened this week that you can think of that's like just kind of ticked you off? Okay, I've got some. Um, so I read this article this week, <clears throat> a little magazine I get called The Week, and, and this is one to just snippet from it. The Justice Department this week charged 48 people with bilking nearly $250 million from a federal program intended to provide food for needy children during the pandemic. Prosecutors said the Minnesota-based nonprofit Feeding Our Future organized dozens of shell companies that collectively produced fake receipts for 125 million meals. Some perpetrators allegedly used the site listofrandomnames.com to produce fake kids' names, while another defendant used a random number generator to fill in the ages of the kids receiving meals. Feeding Our Future's founder, Amy Bach, allegedly was tasked by the state to serve as a watchdog for relief recipients but is charged with actually participating in the fraud. The defendants are accused of using stolen funds to purchase dozens of properties, cars, guns, cryptocurrency, and a Louis Vuitton duffel bag. 
Bach has, um, has denied any wrongdoing. Now, it seems like there's a little too much smoke there to not be fire. But to think about this, there's a group of 50 people that started a nonprofit called Feeding Our Future that came up that, like, you have to create shell companies, right? Like, you have to file and register for them, and then, and then 125 million fake meals to steal $250 million from the government that was earmarked for children in need. That's like $5 million a person that they got out of that. That doesn't seem possible, does it? Like, doesn't it seem like a bit much? Does that not make you mad? Who's mad? Like, come on, I'm mad. Uh, I, um, I, have you, how many of you have gotten a phone call where someone's like, hey, you're behind on this bill. If you don't pay it in like two hours, we're going to cut your lights off. Has anybody gotten that phone call? Has anybody else given them some personal information? Because about a year ago, I don't think this thing had happened before. I was really busy. And so they call, and they're like, some bill's behind. This is not my department in our household, is paying bills. My wife, honestly, I should have known because she's really good at paying bills. Like, that's why she does it, and I don't, because our credit score would be like 300 if I paid the bills, but it's 800 because she pays the bills. And, uh, but I started to give them some information, and I was like, what are you doing? And I stopped, and I screamed at this guy. I was like, you should be ashamed of yourself. How could you do this? Because some, I thought, like, in a minute, I'm like, they've organized this to where they've got like telemarketers calling people trying to scam them over the phone, and it just seemed like I didn't know that this type of stuff happened, you know? Sometimes stuff it has no, no moral, there's not, it's not morally complex. It's just straight out, like, wrong. This is a little bit different. This week, did you see where there was a CEO? I don't know what company it is, but he said he actually prays for inflation because it gives them an excuse to raise their prices. Did anybody see that? Um, and you're like, oh, that's what we figured, but somebody came out and admitted it, you know? So some of those things, you can, like, there, you can be, it can be a little bit funny because it's too far away. Um, some of them aren't. Um, I, whenever WRIL has an article about a sex offender, like, I click on it in part because some of them, a number of them, have to do with people at church that nobody knew. And, um, and so that's why we have policies about how many kids need to be in the classroom and taking kids to the bathroom and all this stuff because churches are notoriously easy marks for sex offenders. But they're people you don't know. And honestly, like, that might be your demon to fight. And fight it well and let us fight it with you. But, like, but, but there was one a couple weeks ago where they kind of detailed in the article the ages of the kids involved in the videos that were being copied and passed along and, like, what was done to them. And I just, like, made you physically ill, you know. Years ago, we had a woman come and speak at church who was involved in, in helping people get out of sex trafficking, and she told a story about um, the FBI trying to get these, I think they were young Asian women that were being held in, it was 1,500 women being held in the basements of suburban Atlanta homes, and the FBI had organized this, like, bust to set them free and somehow the bad guys found out about it so they only got 150 of the girls but they got a journal that that talked about um it it, it detailed like what they charged for different things and i can't even say just because some young ears in the 
and I don't, but I can't even say the one that, I, it's the, probably the first time I remember thinking, Jesus, like, come back now. Like, this very second, come back, and I can get all of it back right now. Like, Jesus, just come back now. Wrap it up, because I can't believe this is happening, you know? There may be something that's happened to you that had no moral uh, ambiguity to it at all, you know? Uh, The flood is a hard story because God looks at what he's created and says, time to wrap it up. It's what he sees, you know? Uh, For what it's worth, every ancient culture Almost every ancient culture has a flood story with similar components. I mean, from that part of the world, the Middle Eastern to China to South America, like all these cultures have flood stories um, where there's a hero and there's a warning and there's judgment and there's a remnant and all this stuff, um, which is where there's that much smoke, there's fire. Like there's something happened, you know. Uh, But we tend to resist it and avoid it, the story because it seems like too much to us. Um, like, it's just hard to know what to make of what happens in this story. We are, we are a moral people, every single one of us. We have a sense of good and bad, and when you, when you hit that, that nerve, like, we feel it. And we're like, that's wrong, you know? Um, we are a morally complex people. And I think a big part of the problem with the flood story is we're not sure if we would be on the boat or we would be out for a swim. You know what I mean? And, like, that's what's hard about it. There's a line from a, a, a Soviet dissident named Alexander Solzhenitsyn who, who was, uh, he spent time in a Soviet gulag post-World War II because Stalin was, like, putting everybody in jail and wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago, which I've tried to read, and I can't, but I'll pick it back up. But he has a great quote where he says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And through all human hearts, this line shifts inside of us. It oscillates with the years. Like, we've got the good, but we've got the bad, you know? Uh, There's a great quote from from a... a a British um, journalist and author and just kind of personality named G.K. Chesterton. It's from, I think, the early 1900s, where one of the newspapers in London asked people to write in and say, what's wrong with the world? You know, and people at that point were probably like child labor, you know, whatever they said. And Chesterton wrote in and said, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) Like, I'm the problem. And we know that's the case. And Solzhenitsyn finishes that quote saying, even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And like that's the problem, is that we know that. It's what makes Noah hard. And so we're moral people, we're morally complex people, but we, and we tend to then expect justice for others, but mercy for ourselves. And so the further somebody is away, the easier it, us, it is for us to, to ask for justice, but the closer it gets, ending with ourselves, the easier it is, is to understand and to expect mercy, you know. There was another charity in the news this week run by a former football player who was a quarterback of a certain football team. 
uh, Brett Favre's charity, if you saw that, Favre for Hope, was collecting money for needy children, but, but shuttling it to the University of um, Southern Mississippi, his alma mater, to build athletic facilities. But he didn't know, like he couldn't possibly have known what was going on, you know, he's just a figurehead for the thing. Like, it's harder for me to be as angry at him as I am at the people in Minnesota, because they're from Minnesota after all, and I'm from Wisconsin. You know, all these things, like it becomes, it's hard for us to know what to do with it. Um, we know there's a need for judgment, but it's hard to discern what it looks like to be fair. So this story, as I work through it at a fairly high level today, I'm going to, I think it points out a few things. One, first, is our need for God. Second is the justice of God. And third is the mercy of God. And really what I want to get across, that I think the story gets across, is if God doesn't rescue us from our sin, our sin is going to destroy us. And it's that second part that I, think, I don't think we're totally convinced of. Um, but if he doesn't rescue us, our sin's going to destroy us. So our need for God. Um, I don't, actually I forgot to check the slides to see if this, the, so the passage runs from chapter 6 through the middle of chapter 9. I'm not going to read the whole passage. It is really interesting, and I didn't learn this until this week, the way the passage is structured is, it's called a chiastic structure, and they use this throughout scripture where they kind of build into a, a, a moment or up to one and then and then come back off of it. And so they, it starts with, in chapter 6, violence in God's creation and is described that way. I guess we don't have this. So it starts with violence for God's creation, and then God resolves to destroy mankind, and then God tells Noah to enter the ark, and then the flood begins, and then the waters rise. And so going through 6 and into 7, it structures this way. And the apex of the whole passage is chapter 8, verse 1. It says, and God remembered Noah, um, which is language that God uses throughout Scripture in the Exodus um, the Israelites cry for help. It says God remembered the Israelites in Egypt. And so that's a language of God's heart reaching out for them. And then, it's, and then where the floodwaters, what waters rose, then the floodwaters recede. And the, the flood had begun, and it says the earth dries. God tells Noah to enter the ark, and God commands Noah to leave the ark. He resolves to destroy mankind, resolved to preserve order, and there was violence. And then it ends with a covenant of peace. So the passage is beautifully structured. Um, to move into that moment and then move back out of that moment from violence to peace. It starts with the violence. And so this is um, the beginning of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you never spent much time in that verse, spend some time in that verse. He's not even talking about what they do yet. Every intention of the thoughts of your heart was only evil all the time. That's pretty bad. He's describing it being really bad. And the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved the Lord to his heart. Now, and then a few verses later, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth. Behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Um, uh, so in the, we're doing a series called Presence. Let me just, for a minute, um, we're doing a series on presence and really going through the scripture about God's presence because the scripture is about God's presence. And the first week, 
what we saw was that we're made for God's presence. That's the place where we're ultimately fulfilled. And all the things that we're like chasing after outside of God's presence aren't going to fulfill us. It's what we're made for. Through Christ, we have the chance to enter God's presence again. And that should be the thing that we want the most because it's the place where it's the only thing that's made to fulfill us. The second week was last week. And we see as we pull away from God, as his presence is disrupted, then we pull away from each other. And I mean, Cain killed Abel in pretty violent ways. Um, it starts to, like, you see the beginnings of this. Really quickly, um, in these chapters 6 through 9, God gets to the point of saying, here's what happens when I leave you alone, when I do not intervene and leave you with your sins, mankind. When I leave you with your sins, pretty quickly, every intent of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil all the time. Like, you can't handle your sin. And we're going to see in a couple weeks with Abraham, God intervenes and says, I have a plan. But I think this is structured to tell us you can't take care of your problem. And we still are not yet convinced of that. <laughs> uh, but that's what he's telling us. And so in the passage, um, and it's the way that it picks up chapters 1 and 2 is, uh, like, impressive to me. It says that God saw, if you can put um, those, the, the, just the previous verses, it says the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And the earth was corrupt in God's sight. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. And in chapter 1, like, it's the same language. God sees what he created. And what does he say about it in chapter 1? It says it's good. Good, 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 good. Very good. But now he sees it. And what does he see? It's corrupt. Um, in, that, in that verse, uh, verse 11 or 12, God saw the earth. It was corrupt for, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11. The earth was filled with violence. What did God want to fill the earth with? In chapter 1. Pardon me? Yeah, people made in the image of God. And so he says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. You're my image bearers. Fill the earth with my image and my glory. But now he looks on the earth, and he sees it's filled with violence. And it's filled with corruption. It's the opposite of what he saw in the beginning. It's the opposite of what he wanted it to be filled with. And then there's a contrast between what's going on in our heart and what's going on in God's heart. And so in our heart, it says every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil all the time. You see stories like this all the time where somebody does something really, really bad, and they interview their grandma or their mom. And what do they say? They got a good heart. And from a distance, you're like, I don't know about that. You know, <laughs> we're not good enough because they did whatever that thing was. You know, but that's what we say because the closer you get, the harder it is. Like, you read stories about how the Nazi guys went home and had dinner with their families, you know, after conducting genocide and experiments on people. But, like, yeah, Solzhenitsyn was right. There's something in us that I guess is good, but, but there's corruption. And so there's only evil all the time. Um, we were going through this years ago, and Ken, and I were Ken Cantrell and I were talking about it. And he said, he asked the question, has anything changed? And I was like, well, there's a good question. Like, is it different than it was then? That's hard for us to figure out. Um, I used this quote last week, and I'll, I'll use it again. It's from A.W. Tozer. He says, because man is born a rebel, he's unaware that he is one. Like, you can't understand the depths of your own problem, your own sin. His constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him to be a perfectly normal thing. 
He's willing to share himself, sometimes even sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. And he paints that out. This is our problem, is that, that we want to be, be God. And that's creating the other problems. He says no matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he's still in his own eyes a king on a throne, and no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. I sent out um, a po- podcast in the weekly on um, Friday. It's good. it's good. You should listen to it. Um, but the woman that is talking at the beginning talks about the ethos of our culture. I forget what word she uses exactly, but it's basically like do whatever you feel is right for you right now. Like just do it. And if you feel it, you should express it and you should have the freedom to do it, right? That's the ethos of the American culture um, right now. And violence is actually inhibiting someone from being able to express themselves fully. Like, I've heard that exact language, that it's a violent act to keep somebody from expressing themselves. Now, in light of God's description of things in the beginning of Genesis, I think have we changed is a fair question. Because freedom is our ultimate. Because we assume it leads to good things. But that is like, let me be on my throne so I can do whatever I want. And that will be good. We dial back further to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and say, we think that's good, but I'm not sure God thinks that's good. I would also counter that we think we're free. Am I free to do whatever I want? What? Yeah. I would like to dunk a basketball and play in the NBA. Am I free to do that? Well, I mean, I could if I could dunk a basketball. I'm not free to do that because I'm not God. Like, because I'm five foot six and I can't jump that tall. Like, we're limita- our limitations aren't us. Our limitation is that we're not God. And what we want is to be God. And that's like, we make this illusion like we're free, but we're not free at all. Uh, and if we were free to act out on all our desires, we would, it would be even worse than it is. Like, we, th- we think acting out on those things, like, we just don't get the problems, the depth of the problems within us. Now that question, has it changed, is a really fair question. If God leaves us alone with our sin and we had more power than we did, the world turns into a hell. And that, that's what this is meant to communicate to us. Leave us alone with our sin and hell goes to, or the world goes to hell in a handbasket in a hurry. And so that, what's going on in our heart is every intent of the thoughts of our heart is only evil all the time. And it's contrasted within God's heart, there's grief. He looks on that and he's grieved. That is all like we communicating to us, you need the Lord. You need the Lord. Your sins will destroy you if the Lord doesn't do something because you can't fix it. And so, and so there's justice, uh, the justice of God. People were ignoring the God who made them, thinking they could find life outside of him. He's letting them. It's making things a living hell. That's the way it's described in that passage. What should God do about it? And it's, it's, I think you have to be careful putting yourself in God's shoes and thinking you can get anything out of that. But, like, what should God do about that? The thing he had made was corrupted by mankind. If he doesn't intervene, the problems don't fix themselves. It's perpetuating misery and violence. 
And that's hard for us because we have a belief that we can fix it. Um, I've read this in the past that, that in the beginning of the 1900s, the beginning of the 20th century, there was just a real spirit of optimism. Uh, it was, you know, into the Industrial Revolution, so we're making technological advances and standard of living advances and scientific advances. Um, think about things like penicillin, vaccines, like we're, the diseases that had ravaged us are starting to not be as much of a problem. Um, economic advances, sociological advances, there's a higher criticism movement theologically that is invalidating the Bible and convincing people we don't need God. Uh, it's, it's like an extension of a humanism, like us being the center of things that had started 200 years previously. So there's this optimism at the beginning of the 1900s. And then we proceed in the 1900s to kill millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people with their ideas. So we have two world wars that are a result of people trying to live out their ideas of how things should be. And then we've got Stalin, who kills 60 million of his own people. And Mao, who kills millions of his own people. And, and guys like Pol Pot in Cambodia that kill millions of their own people. And we come out of that thinking, maybe we're not as smart as we thought we were. Like, we think we can fix it. But I don't think we're doing as good a job as we think that we're doing. Even now, like our standard of living, I've thought about this before, is something that the kings of thousands of years couldn't dream of living the way you and I live. The standard of living that we have is unreal, is even 100 years ago unimaginable. I can't imagine what it's going to be 100 years from now, you know? So there's progress. I heard someone say a few years ago, poverty can be measured financially, but poverty can also be measured, it, measured in other dimensions. So you can be financially rich, but emotionally poor, and relationally poor, and spiritually poor. And they were making the argument that that's what we've done, and I agree with them. And so we financially, like, our standard of living is the best in the world, and it's incredible, you know? Um, but emotionally, we have a wave of anxiety that is crushing our young people, like literally killing them. Deaths of despair was a category that we didn't have like five years ago. But now it's, it's, you hear it cited on the regular, and it's for suicides and for um, addiction, deaths from addiction. And so there's something where even, I mean, it's on campuses, talking to people that do stuff on campuses. We had a woman here years ago that worked in the, the, um, the health thing at UNC, and she said it was all she did was contraceptives and anti-anxiety and anti-depression medication. That was it. And I know I have a buddy that has worked on state's campus in a campus ministry for 25 years, and he said, yeah, the anxiety is like, it's insane compared to when he started. Uh, we have a, a mental health crisis. I read an article this week about young women are developing Tourette's-like tics at an alarming rate, and no one's quite sure why. Uh, so we're emotionally poor. Relationally, I would argue that we're poorer. Um, the Me Too movement exposed that we've been relationally poor for a long, long time, like broken. We have, I guess, less racial tension than we did 50 years ago, but we still have tons of racial tension in our culture because we're emotionally poor. The, the, like gun violence would be an evidence of being relationally poor. Uh, the erosion of the family. More and more data says that we're made for the stability of a family unit, but fewer and fewer young people 
are getting married and having kids because it limits their freedom, which is our, our idol, is our own freedom. And so relationally, we're, we're being poor. I mean, one of my favorite examples, but it's because you resonate with it, is, because, is that we, we will have a week at the beach with our extended family in heaven-like conditions, and after three or four days, think, I got to get out of here. And these are the people we love the most. Like, we have a hard time with each other because we're relationally poor. Uh, and it can't go on like this forever. Like, it's got to get fixed. I thought this week, I wonder when God looks at the earth right now and says, what is it filled with? How he answers that question. Because it's hard for me to look at it. And I don't think of myself as a terribly negative person. I think I give people the benefit of the doubt and I'm fairly optimistic. But then I look around and think, I think you'd look at it and think it's still filled with all sorts of violence and corruption. And think, yeah, that's not really what I had in mind. And they don't seem to care that much about what I had in mind. And then I visit him looking at his watch. I am... Um, I, something that helped me make sense of this, grasp it years ago, was I had two small kids and was preaching Genesis and thought about God kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden for eating a piece of fruit. It wasn't even a candy bar, you know, it was a piece of fruit. And I thought, that's harsh, God. Like, what would happen if the first time my kids screwed something up, I kicked them to the curb and said, good luck, buddy. Like, I'd be on CNN, I'd be in jail be a huge story. And then it's like the Holy Spirit said, yeah, but what are you going to do if when they get to be 16, 17, 18 years old, they just don't want to do, they don't want to live by the rules that you and your co-benevolent dictator wife have established for your household, you know? And if after 16, 17, 18 years, they just don't want to live by those rules, I will kick them out. Now, we didn't have to do that, thankfully, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. They're here, man. They're here. Um, but that will be a form of justice and yet a form of giving them what they want. And presumably when a kid gets to that point, if you're a decent, benevolent dictator with good rules for your household that's seeking the Lord's will, like that will be their own hell. That's going to be harder than they thought that it was. Uh, but that we're telling God we got this and we're making it worse. And God's going to do something eventually. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called, we wrote many great books, but uh, called The Great Divorce, which is an allegory for hell. <laughs> and in it, he really goes further into this and talks about, and freedom, really. Like, if we just get what we want, eventually we're just going to be, in, he has these rings of distance, and we're just going to be isolated from each other because we can't stand being around each other. Like, that's the natural progression of what we're living out. And so he writes, Christianity asserts that we are going to go on forever. Now, there are a great many things that wouldn't be worth bothering about if I was only going to live 80 years or so, but that I had better bother about if I'm going to go on living forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct term for it. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. 
Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Justice. Like it's God nipping it in the bud. Like justice is God preventing hell. Uh, we know, like we know that line of good and evil crosses in our souls. Like to us it looks like that, you know. And we know there's stuff that is evil, that is a bit of hell for us and probably for the people around us more so. And we can't fix it or we can't get ourselves to want to fix it. And man, he's got to do surgery to fix it. And, and we ought beg him for that. Um, and what he ends up doing seems more like chemotherapy where it just blasts all of it, you know. And God is just. And that's a question that comes up in this story. But we're not the ones that are good at dis discerning good and evil. God is. And he makes points to explain that throughout the rest of Scripture. There's a passage in um, <clears throat> a few chapters over in Genesis where Abraham, he's made the promise to Abraham that he's going to make him a nation, um, give him a land, and all the earth is going to be blessed through him. Like, we're going to start the plan. It's going to end with Jesus. We're going to fix this. But at one point, when he, in a dream, when he's making a covenant with Abraham, he says to Abraham, your people, this family, this nation is going to be enslaved for 400 years. He prophesies Egypt. And he says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. And he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And what he's saying is the Amorites are a people that are in the land that God's going to give them. And I can't give you the land right now because I've got to wipe out the Amorites. But their sin isn't bad enough that that would be just. And so you have to suffer for 400 years for justice, to, for this to be justice when you come back and in Joshua wipe out the people in the land. God is deeply concerned for justice and is fair about it. In uh, Exodus, Moses passes, he asks to see God's glory. And this is how God describes himself. It says, the Lord passed before him and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And a lot of times people are like, that Old Testament God seems angry. Well, God doesn't see himself like that. It's a matter of perspective. God sees himself as incredibly patient. But it goes on and says, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And I can't, <clears throat> I, I'm, I can't discern the two parts of those verses. What I can discern is that God's declaring that he's like, you don't need to worry about him being fair. He is. He understands justice better than we ever will. In 2 Peter uh, he writes, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is patient with us. But it goes on, it says, but the day of the Lord will come. Judgment will come, like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He is just. He will bring judgment. And honestly, like, again, we're, we're not sure if we're going to be on the boat or out for a swim. Like, well, that's the trouble. And in Christ, we don't have to wonder about that. I'll get there in just a second. 
But that's our thing is like, do we really want them to do that? And we do, right? There's so many, there's a whole genre of entertainment that is like, let's make the bad, let's depersonalize the bad guy, make him really bad, and then wipe him out. <laughs> it's like a Noah genre. And so uh, Man on Fire, that Denzel Washington movie, or um, all the Taken movies with Liam Neeson, are like, let's make the bad guys really bad, and then Liam Neeson could just take them out, and we, can, we don't have to feel bad about it. Like, it's not morally ambiguous. It's not complex, you know? Did anybody see The Terminal List this summer with Chris Pratt? It was on Prime Video. That's the same thing. We'll make the bad guys bad. He'll wipe them all out. There's a whole, like, that makes us feel good because we get this. We know it. And justice is we have to, it's something we have to trust him with um, and thank him that he's merciful. And so that's the last thing you see in is the mercy of God. And every time there's justice, there's a remnant. There's a chance for mercy. So in this story, the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Um, Noah, this is, a hard, this is a little bit of a story that's hard for me to figure out because Noah is described as blameless and a righteous man who walked with God, which is specific language about righteousness. Um, but... But we'll see in a second, he wasn't perfect by any means. He had evil in him. And so I don't know how God discerns that, except he's not saved by his works, but by faith. Hebrews says about Noah, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet seen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir to righteousness that comes by faith. And so his righteousness was not in his works, it was in his faith. And he wasn't um, perfect. The language... When Noah gets off the ark, the language is, is really particular about redoing Genesis 1 and 2 and making a new start. So he gets off the ark, he makes a sacrifice to the Lord, and then God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he says it a couple times. It's like, Noah, we're going to keep doing this. Like, we're, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He's like the new Adam. And so he gets off the boat and he, he plants a, a vineyard, and so a garden, if you will. And so we're redoing it. And he doesn't eat from the fruit, but he drinks from the fruit of the garden. And then he ends up naked. And that's such specific language for what happened previously. Like, and it's saying, we're starting over, but I know he's still screwed up. And we're going to get to Abraham, and I'm going to start executing my plan. It's like a parallel scene. Um, and God rescues him, not because he was sinless, but because he had faith. And the ark going forward, uh, so the ark... The Hebrew word for ark in that story of Noah is tavah, and it's only used one other place in the Old Testament, and it's when Moses is born in Egypt, and they're slaves of the Egyptians, and the Pharaoh has said, I'm scared there's too many of them, so you have to kill the, the Israelite, the Jewish boys, and he tells the midwives that, and the, the mother gets Moses, and she puts him in a basket, and the word for basket in that passage is tavah. And it's a very clear picture of the same thing, an ark. And it's covered with pitch, just like the ark is covered with pitch. And she puts it in the water. And Noah is saved, or Moses, sorry, is saved through the waters. And so it's an ark of a sort. He passes through the waters and is spared from destruction. When they leave Egypt, the waters of the Red Sea separate. And they pass through the waters. And it's a picture of salvation the same way 
that Noah is, and the Egyptians are destroyed by the waters. When they go into the promised land, the waters of the Jordan are held up, and they go through, um, and ultimately, that's leading out to Jesus and Christ being the ark and the one through whom we are saved. And if we are in Christ, we are spared from destruction because our righteousness comes not from our work, but from the work of Christ on our behalf. And even in that, I don't have to evaluate God's justice with a fine-tooth comb because it's made crystal clear with Jesus what we need. And baptism is a picture of that. And if you are in Christ and haven't been baptized, he calls you to do that because you have gone into the water with Christ and died, but you have been raised to new life in Christ, which is our only hope to be spared from our sin. And it's a picture of all of this stuff coming together. Um, Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is what God's desire us, and he's done everything possible to bring us to God, to bring us back into the presence of God through the work of Christ, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, it took him like 100 years to build that boat, and it was God's patience, and yet no one responded. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Just for clarification's sake, I don't think you need to be baptized to be saved. I think it's representative of the salvation that we have in Christ. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. It is a sobering story. Talking to the, the band and people who are here to work beforehand, I'm like trying to explain what I'm preaching. I'm like, gosh, this is heavy. Thank God it's heavy because it's a mess. Like we're a mess. The world is a mess. And we think, oh, it's fine. Everything's fine. It's not fine. And God is exercising patience now. But providing a way through it in Christ. And I thought about Noah building that boat for 100 years and what that must have been like for him to be faithful and what people said to him and like wanting to invite people. I don't know how all that stuff works. But then I thought, I wonder if the church in a way is like ark-ish. You don't get saved by going to church. You get saved through Christ, but the church is the body of Christ. And so I wondered if, as someone who's been in ministry for 25 years and at times feels like you're doing all this stuff and no one's really paying attention, if it's not a bit like Noah, and it's not just me, it's you. Like, I, so many of you give so much to build the church and devote yourselves to the church. But yet, we've seen God do so many things in so many people's lives and provide salvation and rescue us from sins in very practical ways. And if it's not a bit of like, hey, it may not seem like people are paying attention or things are going on, but like, this is what God's... Some, one pastor said years ago, the local church is the hope of the world. There's nothing like it. There's nothing that carries the mission like it in anywhere on the earth. And that what we're doing is, is like the ark. Paul says we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to other a fragrance from life to life. Like we're in 
the thick of it. And what we're doing is critical. And it may seem like a whole lot of people aren't paying attention to God, but some people are. And I, I don't know what it's like for Noah. He couldn't invite everybody. We can invite everybody into the ark. It's not the church, it's Christ. But in Christ, we become a part of the church and a counter kingdom to the kingdom of this world. And we need it. If God doesn't rescue us from our sin, our sin is going to destroy us. And thank God he has intervened and he is going to intervene and put an end to it. If you are unclear about that, you know, if you're unclear about what Christ has done for you, if, if you've grown up with, like, church or religion is just, maybe I do enough good things for God and then it works out, that is not the gospel. The gospel is I could never do enough good things for God. Christ did the thing that was necessary for me to be righteous, and I need to receive what Christ has done for me, the free gift of salvation. God wants to rescue you from your sin and... I would, uh, would beg you to receive what he's done for you and confess your sins to him and commit to be his disciple and let him rescue you from your sin. Uh, I'm going to pray. The band's going to come back up here. We're going to take communion in a minute. And so if you're new, um, the way that we do this is a couple of us will be up here um, offering you communion, and it is the bread of Christ that has been broken for us and the blood of Christ has been shed for us and he tells us to do this in remembrance of him and so at any point during these next few songs we welcome you to come up i would encourage you not to come up if you haven't confessed christ as lord and accepted what he's done for you um, just because it doesn't make sense to honestly but if you've never done that and you want to today this is a great way to start doing that is <laughs> just to say jesus i realized that i needed you to do something for my for me that i could not do for myself and to come up and to receive what he's done Father, I, this is a hard story. It's always been a hard story for me. And yet it's not, Lord. Um, we are the kids that are 16, 17, 18 years old and are not abiding by your good rules, Lord. Um, in part because we don't want to and in part because we can't. And we need you to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves, Lord. And so it's a day of surrender of personal surrender, if we've never done that before, even if we have done that before, of like a resurrendering of how much we need you to sanctify us, God, to change us to be more like you today, of surrendering um, to your view of things and that our view of good and evil is corrupted, Lord. We can't see it correctly. And the things that in our culture we see as good, you probably see as evil. We think they're solving problems. You think they're making more problems. And I would tend to agree with you, Lord. Just even as I see it, I would agree with you because you're God. Help us, help us to trust you, to see things the way that you see things, to surrender ourselves to you, and to invite people um, into uh, your salvation, Lord. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name.